Victims of crime are eagerly waiting for the government to release a discussion paper in the next few weeks on reforms to the criminal justice system. National has promised to enhance the rights of victims as well as providing them with greater support and follow-up services. So how much progress has already been made and what further improvements are victims campaigning for? Hugh Chappelle investigates. Before Parliament passed the Victims' Rights Act of 2002, victims of crime had few defined statutory rights. For example, there was no formal mechanism to provide information to a sentencing judge as to the emotional and psychological impact a crime had caused. A Wellington lawyer and former ACT Party MP Stephen Franks was on the select committee which considered the proposed legislation. The Victims' Rights Bill was just naked. It set out all these things that looked like rights and then it had a provision that said none of these are enforceable rights. <laughs> so it was Parliament basically saying you must do this and you must do that but it's really only a matter of good manners. And I couldn't believe that we were producing this kind of clamfarge stuff so we held it up and we made some of them into enforceable rights. The national organisation Victim Support provides an around-the-clock service offering emotional support, personal advocacy and information to all those affected by crime and trauma. The Chief Executive Tony Payne says the Victims' Rights Act is a reasonably good piece of legislation which doesn't need a lot of changes made to it. It's much more around the enforcement of the Act um, and making sure that the various parts of particularly the criminal justice system are responsive to the, the directions of that act to, to deal with victims in a particular way. You know, everything from the, the police through to the court and parole system um, to ensure that they are uh, responding to victims in, a, in the way that is enshrined in the act in principle. Um, and I think we're certainly seeing that from the police and I think we're, you're seeing very clear signals from Commissioner Howard Broad that they're increasingly viewing police work as being a victim-centric process and they understand the need of um, not just supporting the victim, which is where victim support comes in, but focusing on the victim as, as being part of their efforts as they seek to, to, to reduce and prevent and solve crime. One part of the Act which is non-negotiable is the requirement for a victim impact statement to be prepared and provided to a judge before a prisoner is sentenced. It sets out the physical injuries, property loss and the psychological effects a victim has suffered. The statement is either read out to the court by the judge or with the judge's permission by the victim. But seven years after becoming a statutory requirement, the principle of victim impact statements is still in the minds of some a nagging sore which needs urgent attention. The lobby group, the Sensible Sentencing Trust, is to the forefront in calling for change. The national spokesperson Garth McVicker says many victims have a real concern about their statements being watered down. Where a judge will go through a victim's impact statement with a felt pen, give it back to the victim and say, read that. It is the one opportunity the victim has to address the concerns they have and front the offender. I believe that should be completely unedited. I've never come across a victim who wants to be abusive or um, vengeful. They just want to tell them the impact the crime has had on them. So why shouldn't they? The Crown Prosecutor for Hawke's Bay and Gisborne East Coast, Russell Collins, understands the Trust's concerns but says judges don't like being taken by surprise. Where a victim wants to read a victim impact statement in court, a judge has the right to know what is going to come out in his or her courtroom. Now, it is true that at times what one might say quite extreme views will appear in victim impact statements. Speaking for my office, we do not look to edit those, but then that uh, does create a problem when obviously Defence Council will complain about the emotive nature of what's in the report uh, and the judge will 
um, remonstrate with the prosecutor that those matters shouldn't have been included uh, and that it hasn't facilitated the process. But a difficult balance because it is the victim's statement and if that's what the victim feels, then for my office we are always uh, reluctant to edit that. Jonathan Krebs has worked as both a prosecutor and defence lawyer during his 20-year legal career. He's never come across a victim impact statement being edited or watered down. I have seen victim impact statements which have been enormous in terms of the number of pages and the number of concepts covered, unnecessarily big, in, in, in my view anyway. Something which is prolix to that extent simply waters itself down. The best victim impact statement I ever saw was written by a seven-year-old girl on a piece of paper that looked like it was an old piece of computer paper and it was written in crayon. And she told the judge exactly what she thought and she just set out in very simple words and probably three or four sentences. And uh, that was singularly the most powerful victim impact statement I ever saw. In mid-September, 33-year-old Clayton Weatherston was sentenced in the High Court in Christchurch to a minimum of 18 years in jail after being found guilty of stabbing his former girlfriend Sophie Elliott to death in her home in Dunedin. During the two-hour procedure, her father, Gilly Elliott, read his victim impact statement to the court. I am struggling to come to terms with the death of my beloved daughter, Sophie. She was vibrant, intelligent, hard-working, loving, thoughtful, strong-willed and beautiful. She was a gift from God. We all thought so. She did not get to graduate with her first-class honours degree in economics, something that she'd worked so hard for. Clayton had graduated, but he deprived Sophie of that. He destroyed her life in the cruelest way imaginable. Her death would have been so awful and so excruciating as to be unimaginable. The police didn't think it was a good idea for us to see our daughter. Can you imagine what it feels like? She was so badly mutilated that people are advising us not to see her. But Gil Elliott's nine-minute-long statement wasn't the same one he'd originally taken over a year to prepare. He says the day before sentencing, the police handed him a censored version of his original three-page victim impact statement. About a page of references to Witherston had been deleted. Gil Elliott wants a change in the law as to what statements can contain. Tony Payne from Victim Support says there definitely needs to be a debate on the role of victim impact statements. Where is the place for that legitimate sense of, of anger and desire for people being held quite forcefully to account and, and for that to be heard in the, in the court system as well um, without creating an environment that becomes kind of even more white-hot and, and fraught and bearing in mind that courtrooms are difficult places for victims to be in at the best of times. Um, if they're sitting listening to evidence about what's happened to a loved one, um, if they are seeing face-to-face -face for the first time the person who has literally wreaked havoc upon their lives or the lives of a loved one, that's a very emotionally um, trying situation for victims. So I think it's important that we, we continue to do whatever we can to make sure that, that emotionally and psychologically those places are as, as safe as they possibly can be as well. The Minister of Justice, Simon Power, says the issue of victim impact statements is one of the measures the government is considering including in its discussion document on reviewing victims' rights. And I'd be very interested in, um, in advice uh, and submissions on that point. You go back to the broader question, which is, is our criminal justice system designed for lawyers, judges and court staff, or should it be designed for those people 
victims, jurors, witnesses, uh, and, and to some extent, although a lesser extent, defendants, who are there through no fault of their own. And I think for too long the answer to these problems in the criminal justice system has simply been to build more courthouses and appoint more judges. I think the new government has taken the view that parts of the system are broken and that means some fundamental reform is required rather than just um, pouring in um, more dollars for more judges and courthouses. But Simon Power says the national-led government has already made progress in restoring fairness to the justice system. He says a bill passed in October requires all offenders to pay a $50 levy when they're convicted. That could raise a pool of about $14 million by 2013, which can be used to help victims of crime both practically and emotionally. Mr Power rejects criticism that the $50 levy is too small. It's got to be collectible. Uh, we looked at some other jurisdictions um, in Australia and Canada and the UK where they had tiered systems of 100 or 50, depending on the nature of the crime. looked too complicated to me. Uh, we think $50 is achievable. We think most people can pay that over time. And um, we had to be realistic about that. If we'd set the figure too high, the collectability of it would have been greatly reduced uh, and we think we've got the balance about right. Tony Payne from Victim Supports says providing practical and emotional support for victims is hugely beneficial. For example, we know that if, that if a victim of a serious crime, an assault for example, doesn't receive timely, emotional and social and physical support, their chances of, of developing some form of post-traumatic stress symptoms are increased. Um, that then downstream inevitably means a greater burden for our health system at some point or other, and certainly it's not a good result for the individual either. If you're an elderly person living alone and you are... Burgled. There's research from the UK that suggests that your life expectancy goes down and your chances of going into aged care goes up as a result of that experience. And you can imagine why that an elderly person living alone, their sense of vulnerability is increased, their sense of nervousness is increased by a burglary. Some of those negative consequences are, are long-term and pretty counterproductive to a, to a safe and caring society. Others of them are much more tangible. Prison Fellowship of New Zealand is a Christian volunteer movement committed to the spiritual, moral, social and physical needs of convicted criminals and their families, as well as the victims of crime. The Fellowship's restorative justice manager, Jackie Katunas, says there's a lot more which can be done for victims. It's encouraging that the current government do want to look at improving the rights of victims, and I agree wholeheartedly that that needs to happen. However, I do believe in other ways that I'm not sure, or well, I'm not convinced that the government are currently looking at um, some positive ways that I think could be beneficial for victims. Specifically what? Well, my passion is restorative justice, and I think the power of restorative justice is huge huge in terms of uh, the benefits for victims and how they're able to heal or experience a measure of healing. I don't say all victims will heal from a restorative justice process. However, I believe it helps them on their healing journey. And I think post-sentence restorative justice is not funded and not resourced and not available for victims of very serious crime. And I think we should perhaps be looking at how we can make that happen. In a previous life, Jackie Katunas was a career criminal. She notched up 138 convictions over 20 years and spent a total of 12 years in jail. Her life changed when she received stolen goods from a hotel owner who'd been good to her. She says restorative justice where a victim meets with an offender is not a soft option as some people claim, but a difficult process. I know from experience that when that victim does come face to face with this person who they view as being a monster, 
for the first time they can actually see them as being real human beings, often with huge, huge problems in their lives, and some sense of understanding around why they offended in the first place. It doesn't excuse the behaviour, and it's certainly unacceptable behaviour, and we need to address that and how that can be put right. Dove Hawke's Bay is a member of the National Network of Stopping Violence Organisation and has contracts with the Ministry of Justice, the Department of Corrections and Child, Youth and Family. The General Manager Caroline Lamp applauds the government's moves but says there's still a long way to go. She says Dove Hawke's Bay works mainly with women and children who are a particularly vulnerable group of people. I think there is still some work to be done around the kind of support that those people need. They find it easier to work often with community agencies than they do with government systems and the criminal justice system, for example. So the criminal justice system is not necessarily the best place for supports for victims. Uh, the agencies in the community that are supporting women and victims of family violence are doing it from a different perspective uh, rather than worrying about necessarily getting a conviction and getting women to court to testify the first and paramount issue for us is providing the support and care that they need putting themselves in a position where they are testifying in court and then open to cross-examination by uh, defence counsel um, is a very traumatic and scary proposition for a lot of women Gil Elliott says the way the court system operates definitely needs to be looked at. It's just so slow and pedantic and there are so many rules and the rules all seem to favour the offender and hardly any rules favour the victim. And not only have you gone through all this business of, of losing your child and funeral and goodness knows what and various hearings and then you have to go to, you know, to trial and listen to them saying all these nonsensical things, and it's really, really annoying and frustrating. It's just, just a great big theatre, a game, an act, all at the victim's expense. So why can't we have the same sort of relationship with a lawyer of our choice, exactly as the offender is allowed to do? It's very difficult to actually get involved, because you, you get that feeling all the time that the prosecutors really don't want to know too much about you, that we'll handle this sort of thing and you just keep out of it. And if we hadn't insisted on seeing them, I'm not sure that they would have seen us because we have talked to other people uh, who didn't know you could actually talk to the prosecutors and the prosecutors have not talked to them, just absolutely bypass them. Whereas the, the defence, of course, they are intimately involved with the offender. Five years ago, Tracy Anderson from Morrinsville was kidnapped from her home after a friend was killed by the same offender. She was held hostage for two days while being repeatedly raped. It never leaves you, it never will. You just um, learn to live with it. You just have to accept that this is what it's going to be like, that life will never be the same, and it never will. I'll never be able to, to work full-time again. I suffer from mental illness, and I can only do what I can manage. Tracy Anderson says the offender is serving a minimum 17-year sentence for murder, with no extra prison time for the crimes he committed against her. She says the court system needs altering, so victims come first. Because it is always the Crown versus the offender, the victim then becomes null and void as a person. It is very hard to describe what it is like to, first of all, go through and being a victim of crime, and then 
the whole lead up, whether it be a year or 18 months before high court trials come to it. I'm sitting there with the offender's family, knowing that they are hearing and seeing, and the jury are also hearing and seeing the the offender's family shaking their heads and, and you know, telling, saying it's lies and, and things like that. No one can imagine what it is like until you're in that situation. Uh, no one told us what was going on. No one informed me before sentencing that he was going to be getting a bulk discount and that for me, standing up and testifying and going through the trauma of being re-victimised in a courtroom and I would have received no justice whatsoever. And that is, that is my big problem with the court system. Ken Croskery is married to Rita, whose 40-year-old son Michael Choi was beaten to death in South Auckland in 2001 with a softball bat. He says it's hard to come to terms with the fact a crime is committed against the state and not a victim. When we first went uh, and attended the court hearings and that, we felt as though we were just nuisances being there. We were so um, isolated from the thing. It was hard to stomach, especially with Rita and I, because we've always paddled our own canoe. And it was very hard, very hard to get our mind around. And that continued on to even the first parole hearings. We become a nuisance. And it was only through uh, Rita's initial stubbornness that we were managed to uh, attend the first parole hearings. And it's just not on. I feel the justice system wants a, a great overhaul, a great shaking out. The justice system goes back 600 years or something, doesn't it? Here we are, 2009, and uh, really not a lot has changed. And, you know, it doesn't give you much confidence uh, how, the, how, how the system's working now. Alan Monk is a retired police officer who spent 38 years as a constable on the beat, a supervising sergeant, and as a prosecutor in court. I believe that virtually every person that puts their name up does it for you know, a real belief that they can make a difference and they can make this place safer and look after the, the defenceless. But once you get into police service, uh, you realise that a lot of that objective won't be achieved because the system is not designed in that way. It's designed to protect defenders' rights. I don't, don't have any qualm with that. Those rights have to be protected, but at the same time, victims' rights should be paralleled. The pendulum has swung just too far in favour of the rights of the, of the offender. But Crown Prosecutor Russell Collins says there's one huge advantage in having a criminal justice system based on the Crown standing between the victim and the accused. It's designed and should take a lot of emotion out of what uh, is often inherently a very emotional issue, very difficult issue, so that the process focuses on the issues that should be focused on and that what is relevant becomes the focus of the, the court hearing. Another area of the criminal justice system which victims say needs addressing is the inability of a victim or their family to stand up in court and defend allegations made by an accused. In January 2005, Natasha Hayden, who was 24, was strangled to death at McLaren's Falls near Taronga. Her mother, Lynette Brown, says during a videotaped interview with the police, the accused Michael Curran made a number of demeaning comments about her daughter. She says it was frustrating not to have the right during Curran's trial to reject what he'd said to the police. Curran could say whatever he liked to say about Natasha and no one is allowed to protect her and say the truth about her, yeah, just the lies he told about Tash and the type of girl she was, which 
was not true. You know, someone needs to be able to go into bat for the victim because the jury sits there and they see the video interviews of what he wants to say about her and you think, well, what are they thinking? Are they thinking, well, if she knew the guy and obviously what's happened to her, perhaps she deserves it. They had had a relationship and we admit that they had had. She ended it and he turned nasty on her and because he couldn't have her, he killed her. So then he just lies and lies and says all these things that she was what she wasn't. And you sit there and you just shake your head and you think, well, who's on trial here? Him or her? Why can't we get up there and tell a real story about how she is and say, well, she's not on trial, he's on trial. The Justice Minister Simon Power has some sympathy for Lynette Brown's argument. You know, one of the the hard facts, I guess, of our criminal justice system is that technically prosecutors are not there for victims. Um, they're there to prosecute the case. Not every victim will want to involve themselves in that process. Um, it'll vary from case to case. The question is, should the government provide the framework for them to elect in if they wish? And I have to say, all my instincts tell me the answer to that question should be yes. But lawyer Jonathan Krebs says the right for the prosecution to request a victim or a member of their family to give evidence already exists. There's every opportunity, if it's important for the criminal inquiry, uh, for family members or anybody else for that matter to be called by the Crown uh, by way of rebuttal evidence if necessary or in evidence uh, during the Crown case if this challenge is known about early enough to deal with those issues. But if it's not relevant to the criminal inquiry, and I use that word very generally, to the process of deciding guilt or innocence, then the process is simply is not robust enough to deal with it, and nor it should be. Because when you think about it, any sort of inquiry or any evidence or any argument that isn't directed to the issue, has the Crown proven the case uh, beyond reasonable doubt, is going to be a distraction to the fact finder, uh, particularly in jury trials. Lynette Brown's husband, Brian, says the issue highlights the unfairness of an alleged offender being able to make accusations about a victim in a police interview, but then not having to justify under oath what they've said. Put him in there. And, and not just for murder trials, rape trials. If you're going to go back over the woman's history, you know, uh, on a rape, and drag all her past down, put his on there. And how frustrating is it for you to sit through a trial knowing that the defendant doesn't have to take the stand. Oh, absolutely frustrating. Oh, it's it's one of the worst things, you know. You keep thinking, oh, no, he's, he, he has to go in there, and the police keep saying, no, no, he's got this right to silence, he doesn't have to go in there. And, you know, I mean, this turkey changed his story five times before it went to trial. And that's the other thing with discovery, where the police have to hand everything over you know, and then he could fit the story as per the evidence. Gil Elliott is also in favour of the right to silence being abolished. He says despite the pain he and his wife Leslie went through, their pleas Clayton Weatherston gave evidence so he could justify himself to the jury. Anybody that saw him on the stand would see that he actually dug a big hole for himself because he thought he was good, he thought he could convince the jury and the public that he was in the right and that she, she was nasty to him and he had every right to, to get rid of her. Well, of course he didn't. So he was there for five days trying to convince everybody that he was right and, of course, he was just getting further and further into a hole. And, of course, the right to silence is so that a defendant will not uh, do exactly that. And, of course, he did, you see. But Jonathan Krebs says it has to be remembered that the right to silence is available to any person once he or she becomes a suspect in a crime. He says because an accused may waive the right to silence when interviewed by the police, 
doesn't mean the right should disappear during a trial. The whole thing about the right to silence, it's not there to make victims or their families feel bad. It's not there to help guilty people get off. What it's there to recognise is that in, in almost all cases it is the duty of the Crown, who has all of the power and the delegated power from the Queen to bring a person before court and to accuse them, it's the duty of that person to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt. That is the system we have. It has its warts, and there's no doubt about that. And this, it seems, is a wart which is um, becoming a little bit irritating for some groups at the moment, this right to silence issue. But it is an underlying uh, right, and uh, to take that away, or to in any way undermine it, uh, would be quite wrong. And I just don't think people realise the consequences uh, that that would bring for society as a whole. Um, the right to silence is something which is throughout the Western world. If people want to live in a country that, that has no right to silence or has a presumed guilt until you prove yourself innocent, they can go and live in a Muslim country. But former MP and lawyer Stephen Franks disagrees that the right to silence should remain sacrosanct. It's not very radical. I mean, the British did it 15 years ago. There are a number of judges in New Zealand who have said, why have we still got the so-called right to silence? But overall, there is a, a sort of an elite have been running our criminal justice system who regard any change from what we've got as a threat to their conceptions of a fair trial. Justice Williamson, Court of Appeal Judge Ted Thomas, wrote maybe 10 or 15 years ago that the right to silence was not a necessary part of a fair trial, and just nothing happens. The Latin maxim, nemo tenetur si ipsum accusare, no man is bound to accuse himself, became a rallying cry for religious and political dissidents who were prosecuted in 16th century England. Crown Prosecutor Russell Collins says forensic science and the ability to interview a suspect using a video camera means the world is now a very different place. There may be somewhat of a halfway house that may be a consideration in any case, whether it be fraud or whatever. If the agency of the state investigating the matter has achieved certain evidence which implicates an accused person and the only person who can uh, explain that or complete the inquiries is the accused, then if that person wishes to invoke the right to silence, should the prosecution then be able to comment on that right to silence? Because we not only have the right to silence, but because it is a right and it's a right to silence, the prosecution doesn't have the ability to comment on that because our system says that would be wrong um, if it's a right. And Russell Collins says there are currently exemptions to the right to silence under the Misuse of Drugs Act and the Arms Act. The Justice Minister Simon Power says a lot of work has gone into the government's discussion document and there are several areas where he personally wants to see improvements made for victims. Collectivising into a unit in the Ministry of Justice which oversees the rights of victims in the criminal justice process so that they have a point of reference um, as well as um, a one-stop shop uh, to head to. The victims' notification registers also need to be updated to make sure that we don't have a repeat of a horrific situation where someone is bailed or paroled next door to a relative of the victim of their original offending. Uh, there's work to be done on whether or not dealing with victims of sexual violence, whether or not the cross-examination techniques that the adversarial nature of our criminal justice system encourages 
shouldn't be replaced by a more uh, question-and-answer inquisitorial system, and I've asked the Law Commission to do some work uh, in that area. So there's actually quite a broad sweep of work being undertaken across a range of subject areas in the victims' rights space. Simon Power says the government is committed to reforms which put those people who are victims at the centre of the criminal justice system. Whether they go far enough for victims will be known after the release of the discussion document in the next few weeks. That programme was written and presented by Hugh Chappelle.